Today on Way Too Interested, we have a podcast about the conceptualization of sex. It's a deep, unusual, and interesting topic. So come on and join us. So your hobby went from borderline to totally obsessive. Gavin's gonna find out how you got way too interested. Way too interested. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Way Too Interested. My name is Gavin Purcell. Um, if you're the first time to this podcast, uh, welcome. I'm very excited that you're here. Uh, this is a podcast where I interview interesting people about something that they're semi-obsessed with and outside of their everyday lives. And then the two of us talk to an expert in that subject matter. We go deep on some weird, interesting stuff and, and uh, definitely check out some of the archives if you haven't. There's been some fun topics. This one is a super interesting one and I have a super interesting guest to discuss it with. My guest today is Dr. Eleanor Jenga. Um, she is an academic, uh, generally a medievalist. Um, she's also very active on Twitter, and I find her tweets really interesting. Anybody on Twitter who kind of goes deeper into a specific space is super interesting to me and a good person to check out. Today's topic is about the conceptualization of sex. Um, and this is kind of an interesting, unusual one. The best way to describe this is kind of like how people think about sex versus just purely as reproduction. We go very deep on this. My guest is an academic and my expert is an academic, but I think you're going to enjoy it. Obviously, the subject matter is it's not NSFW um, because it's pretty academic, but you know, it's not necessarily something you'd want to have kids listen to. So keep that in mind. Or maybe you would. It's really not uh, It's not explicit in any sort of way. So please enjoy. I think this conversation is really good and fascinating. Um, take a listen. Here's Eleanor Jenga. Okay, welcome, Eleanor. Uh, thank you so much for being on Way Too Interested. I'm really happy to have you here. I'm absolutely delighted to be here, especially because I get to talk about something really nerdy. <laughs> yeah, that's so much fun. So, okay, I want to jump in first. Let's Let's get some background on you. Um, I know you mostly or really entirely from your Twitter originally, which I found. I don't know how I found it. Twitter's always one of those weird things where like somebody probably retweeted you into my timeline. And I'm pretty good at following people I find interesting just because I'm like, I always want to expand that out. But tell me a little bit about your background and and kind of how you got started in the world. Because on Twitter, you call yourself a medievalist. Do you still kind of define yourself by that? Yeah, I would say so. Um, so on the whole, I mean, my my. PhD is on a mid, is in medieval history, and that's what I tend to teach. Although I also teach early modern because, uh, you know, the the distinction between uh, medieval and early modern is really you know an academic one. It's something that historians do to get ourselves off the hook because you know medieval <laughs> literally means you know between times. So it's sort of like oh after the ancient world but before the modern world, and you know nobody woke up in 1501 and was like oh hey look everybody we're we're modern now. That's that's what happened. So I have to basically cover a good sort of 1100 years of history or so in order to to capture everything that I'm interested in. So yeah, I'm definitely, um, I would say that I'm a medievalist. And I, but within that, I'm more specifically a medieval historian, because you know, you could work on literature, um, and be a medievalist as well. You know, there's a lot of layers to this stuff. But uh, yeah, so um, within that, though, my areas of expertise are like um, sexuality, apocalypticism, propaganda and imperialism is like my, my joke is that the things that I'm most interested in are sex and death because I don't think that anything else is important. <laughs> so uh, I mean, that's what the human the human existence is about, right? In a lot of ways. Yeah, that's what we're <laughs> exactly. all for. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Well, um, 
Uh, one of the things I love about your Twitter handle is you take a lot of history and you're putting into modern context, right? Like, is that part of why you kind of wanted to get into history? And I think I, I, I'll mention this in a bit, but my brother is a medievalist too and studied, um, he got his PhD at Columbia. I think that's really an interesting aspect of people who go into history, like trying to put it into context, it, try and put the modern world into context, right? And it seems like that's a big part of what you try to do. Yeah, absolutely. Because I don't really think that there's a way to interact with history as though, you know, it's it's a completely closed circuit that has nothing to do with us. You know, the reason that I study history is to try to explicate the modern world and, and what it is that we're going through. Because the more you time you spend on looking at how social interactions work, um, how we kind of agree to various social constructions, how those came about, then that explains where we are today. Um, and it's interesting because, especially for medieval history, um, one of the things that happens is that it gets almost entirely ignored or completely misrepresented. And there's, you know, really important modern reasons for that and sort of like, well, you know, in the first place, a, a lot of time in the modern period went into sort of reifying and justifying and really bigging up um, huge slave empires like Rome. <laughs> it's saying, oh, you know, Rome was a really great time. You know, when 40% of the Italian peninsula were slaves, <laughs> that's when stuff was great. It was really good. Um, and that time in the middle there where mm, actually there were like smaller parcels of land and, you know, people kind of did their own thing in various different places. That was bad. That was a bad time. And the closer that you get towards being more like a giant slave empire, the better off you are, you know, and we've really <laughs> right. internalized that. And, you know, um, there's also kind of like reasons for, I think, ignoring medieval history just because it's really complex. Um, I mean, yeah, just within Europe, you know, standards are really different. You know, what what's true in on the Iberian Peninsula is definitely not true, like in modern day Sweden and things like that. So you, you can't make broad generalities, which people really like. So people just kind of go, yeah, you know, there's Rome and then Magna Carta, Martin Luther. And then like, and that's kind of how they relate to it. Um, so I didn't right. even really get to start studying medieval history until I got to college. And I basically took, I, I went to Loyola Chicago where they've got a really, really great uh, bunch of medievalists. And um, I was like, oh, you know, this is something that I know almost nothing about. I, I'll sign up for one of these classes because that'll be fun. And then it was just completely over. It was just like, bang, it hit me like a, like a ton of bricks. I absolutely fell in love immediately. And um, that's awesome. And, you know, now here I am. <laughs> so Yeah, yeah. So in, in one of the things you made me think about was um, when you talk about Rome or even America or whatever, England, right? The big stories of history. In medieval history, are there just a bunch more stories so that it's kind of spread out across a lot of things? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good point, actually. So we tend to want to have like this, here's a broad stroke that you can have. But actually, what's really great about medieval history is that you've got like lots of minute little pieces of history that are true from one place and not necessarily another. So, you know, it's really interesting, for example, to look at the way that, you know, Vikings attack all over the continent. Sure, but there's a real different way of looking at how the Vikings attack Paris for a couple of years on the one hand. And then on the other hand, they're like working as imperial guards in Constantinople <laughs> in the, for the Eastern Roman Empire, right? So you can't even just say that, you know, even a group of people like the Vikings who are kind of culturally similar are always doing the same thing because everywhere they go, they're doing something different, right? Yeah, I've never thought about that. That's fascinating too, because when you think of when I think about the Vikings, I think of like one thing. I think honestly, I think yeah. of Assassin's Creed right now. That's what I yeah, mostly think of because yeah. I've been playing Assassin's Creed. But 
I don't think of them dispersed across the globe in any way, right? And like, mm. that's those little stories that you can kind of dig into and find. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I really love about it. And I think it's so fun, you know, even over time. I mean, we're talking about, you know, a thousand years of history, more or less. And so obviously things are really different in, in the beginning than they are in the end. And so, you know, late medieval society, which is like really my baby, like I'm a really, really kind of like a 14th century kind of chick, really. Because um, I just love <laughs> the Black Death. Uh, so, uh, so, but you know, what's happening um, in the 14th century is super, super different from what's happening, for example, in the 12th century, uh, which is really, really different from what's happening in the 19th century. So you you have all these different ways of looking at things. But on the other hand, medieval Europeans are really into um, kind of lineages, and they're really into sort of pinning themselves intellectually to things that came before them. So you can kind of trace intellectual developments really, really carefully because that's what they're into. So you can kind of build these sort of philosophical or academic arguments based on their own. And I find that really, really delightful. You know, every single thing that they do, they try to um, pin that back to, you know, Plato or Aristotle. And then, you know, they'll want to pin it to Charlemagne and then they want to pin it to Thomas Aquinas. And then, and then you can just watch them sort of leapfrog. So that's a really delightful thing to kind of dig into. If you do nerdy stuff like me, like sit around and try to think about um, why we think about sex the way we do, you know, so it gives you a really clear line of thinking. So I enjoy that. Oh, that's awesome. I actually want to sit back real quick into the world of academia, because I think for me, I grew up thinking maybe that's something I'd want to do is get into academia. Well, mostly because I thought it would be really fun to kind of like find these little kind of treasure trails and kind of go down them, which is a little bit what this podcast is about too, right? So my question to you is, <laughs> I'm always jealous of academics, but uh, what are the downsides? I, I also know that there are probably, you, you know, you get to like kind of pursue your interests in so many ways. What what do you feel like are the downsides to being academic? Um, probably the insane amounts of work and super low pay. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, that's um, true. I can see that. Yeah. <laughs> like, right. Like, and you know, now one of the big downsides that we're having also is that um, you know we've got a lock, lack of permanent jobs. Um, you know, basically the actual work of academia has become sort of untethered from actually getting paid for it in any meaningful sense because they kind of figured out that they could not hire us permanently and just hire us on like real piecemeal contracts because we'll still keep trying to do it because we really love it. So, you know, it's kind of right. like be, being trying to be a successful academic at this point is like saying, oh, I want to be, you know, an actor. Uh, it's it, like, you know, is it possible? <laughs> sure. Like you'll probably even get paid sometimes, but like, are you really ready to hustle on that level? And, you know, some people are and some people aren't, you know, I came down on the side of, well, if I don't try to do this, I'll probably be, you know, spending my, the rest of my life thinking what, what would I do um, if, you, right. you, know, you know, what, what, what if, what if, what if, and, you know, luckily enough, I've managed to find myself a little niche, but I'm one of the really lucky ones. And, you know, you know, it's sad because like all the time I'll have really talented, wonderful students coming to me uh, and they'll say, oh, you know, I'm really interested in being a historian. And I have to be like, oh, honey, no, <laughs> like save yourself. Run. <laughs> you know, there's like, this isn't, this isn't a career, babe. Like you can't, you can't do this to yourself. So I hate, I hate having to do that. Um, but, you know, maybe maybe it's something that we'll figure out. But it's we're we're currently in a place with academia where we really need to kind of circle back and figure out how to allow people to live a dignified life uh, while doing um, what's, you know, very important work, the important work of um, moving moving society on and, uh, you know, thinking really deeply about things, you know. 
I was, yeah, I was going to say, like, to me, the important work really is allowing people to pursue truly what they are interested in, right? Like, which is a really hard thing to value in our society, because a lot of times society value comes out completely of like, what value can you deliver for everybody else? And, mm -hmm. and sometimes the value that you can deliver for everybody else is like a really engaged human being. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I, I would say that more, more engaged human beings overall would be a better thing. Yeah, I think that you've actually hit the nail on the head here because the, the problem is, you know, as the, the old slogan goes, you know, the university isn't a factory, right? We, we don't produce something that makes money necessarily, and that's not supposed to be what we're about. We're supposed to be in the business of creating, you know, fully fledged human beings and and knowledge, and knowledge doesn't doesn't pay, you know? <laughs> like, there's, there's no real way of doing that. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I think sets a, a really flourishing society apart is by saying, yeah, we've got time for this. You know, we've got time um, for people to think really deeply um, and to pursue various uh, trains of thought to their logical conclusion. You know, that's that's what sets them apart. And, you know, um, where we're at right now, I'm not exactly sure. There's still some of that going on, but uh, we could use a whole hell of a lot more of it. You know, um, going to college shouldn't be about just getting a job. It should be about, you know, learning something and really, really yeah, uh, feeling it. hundred um, percent. Okay. Before we move on to your topic, I want to ask you one last question. As an academic, you often probably pursue a course of knowledge and then kind of have to complete it at some point, right? Like you're either write a, you're writing a piece about it, you're writing a thesis about it or something, and then you want to move on to the next thing. Do you ever get like a sense of regret moving on from a topic? Like, do you ever feel like there's a moment where you're like, gosh, I wish I could just dedicate my entire life to this specific topic? Or do you fully like feel like you're done with it by the time you're done with it? Oh, see, I suppose that I'm kind of somewhere between the two, because the thing about being really deep in a topic is that you continue to find more things and more things and more things that you want to pursue, right? Where you'll say, oh, well, there's this other angle that I would love to go chase down. And so one of the things that you unfortunately have to do is say, look, look, it has to be, it's just got to be enough, right? You know, you can't, you can't do that. And so, you know, no one else is going to be that interested in it. You've got to, you know, cut it off at a particular time, but you know, I'll tell you what, like I'm editing a book right now and I'm kind of so sick of what's in this book at this point <laughs> that I'm just like, oh my God, get it away from me. Like I'm really, really done. But still, if you said, oh, well, is there any more that you could have said about this? I'd be like, oh yeah, you know, I've probably got another 20,000 words on X, you know, but it, you have to know when to draw the line and kind of move on lest you become one of those people that's just stuck in exactly the same whole all the time. And, and that's really not a, much of a benefit to anyone. And it is also good to leave sort of some paths um, unexplored yourself, because in theory, other academics should be doing that at some point. And we, we want to hear lots of voices, right? Of course. Do you ever find yourself like in conversation with people when you're super deep in a subject and you can just see you've gone too far? <laughs> like yeah. you've, gone, you've gone too deep? <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's like there's a kind of glazed look that people yeah. get, you know, at, at a particular time. So, you know, you have to get really good. I think um, in order to be the sort of academic, which I fancy myself to be, which is the sort that talks to ordinary people, you got to get real good at reading them and knowing where that line yeah. is, you know, so it's yeah. like, I got to give them enough to be interested in without really taxing them all too much because man, you know, I could, I could really kill the vibe at the pub. Uh, given the opportunity. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. You know, one of the things we were talking about is the idea of how the internet is allowing people to pursue the sort of things that they might have been able to pursue via academia before. 
What is your take on that? Do you feel like that's a, I mean, obviously it's a positive thing for those people that might not have done it on their own. Yeah. I mean, for me, that's, that's definitely the case. And one of the things that I find really exciting in my own work now is that I'm able to talk to a lot of people on the internet who want this information and want to, to learn more about it. So, you know, I've got a blog that talks to way more people than I would ever talk to through an academic publication. You know, there's a really depressing statistic that is, um, I think most academic papers have an average of 2.5 readers. Oh my God. Yeah. Whereas, you know, like I've got blog posts that have been, you know, read by half a million people. And so, you know, ask me what I would rather do. Um, but at the same time, it also allows people who are kind of auto dictates or people who have really gone very, very hard into something that they like themselves to get that knowledge out to, to people. And I think there's a huge value in that. Um, like, for example, I know that there's this guy who is really into heirloom species of apple. And he's got this really great website where he just talks about all different seeds. He grows all these different apples. He kind of categorizes them and shows them to you. And I'm like, that is so, so cool. And there's also kind of like no room within, you know, the, uh, the academy for something like that anyway. So I love that the internet lets you do these deep dive things about wonderful subjects that are really worth pursuing when the avenues to do that within the academy are limited. Yeah. Do you find yourself, one of the things I, I talk about on the show often is I find myself getting lost in those spaces sometimes. And like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you can, I'm just one of, one of those people who will just like pursue something for probably too long and go deeper on it. Do you find yourself doing that on subjects outside of your, your everyday life, everyday academic life? Oh yeah, absolutely. I got really sucked into after watching um, a Netflix documentary about it. Um, learning about the Chippendales the other week. <laughs> um, <laughs> That is a great I, you know, one. I would that's fascinating. I'd love to know. I would love to know what the deal with that is. Yeah, well, I mean, it's really interesting because for me, it was always just kind of like a watchword and a joke. It's like a it's like a Chris Farley sketch, in, yeah. in my opinion, you know, uh, but, you know, learning more and more about, you know, how kind of like a strip shows for women got set up. And, you know, there's all this kind of like sh there's like murder and shady backdoor deals and, you know, like buying off the police. And I'm like, this is interesting. And like within it, um, I also found out the origin of like the hot stripper cop, which I think is really... Well, tell me about it. What's the origin of it? I, I want to know now. So when the Chippendales actually started out, they didn't have a license for having a strip show and a cop actually came in and like broke it up and was like, you don't have a license for this. And then they were like, you know, what would be funny and sexy is if we had a stripper do that and come in and be like, you ladies need to keep it down. And so like the next week they got their license and went back and it was like, there's the stripper cop. Oh my <laughs> so God. I know, right? So I love that. I absolutely love that. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm completely susceptible to just rabbit holing about various things. I mean, especially if there's kind of like stripper cops involved. <laughs> <laughs> also, documentaries do that, right? Like when you watch a documentary, there's something about the way they interact with your brain that's so different than watching like a scripted show, right? Like, it, and obviously, mm. you know, you're you're. It's a. It's. I always think of documentaries, and why I love the the proliferation of them now is like it is like learning. You're learning about something, right? And it's kind of like, it, it's mm. it's forced learning in a way because you're sitting in front of this kind of passive device, a television, but you're really learning in a way that you would if you're reading a book or anything else. And it can open your brain up in crazy ways. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that because sure, you don't have the freedom to do your own investigation within that. But 
it's a really um, dynamic way of bringing forward a particular narrative or making a, a particular argument. And then if you're really compelled by that, then you can, you know, do what I do and like start learning more about stripper cops on your own time. So <laughs> I think that it's a really nice thing to do is watch documentaries because as, as you say, you know, you can learn, but it's without kind of all of the extra faff, you know? Yeah. Is there one, you know, just a wall, we have a second. Is there one documentary in your world that you recommend people watch in from the world of medieval is like medieval? Is there, is there something that's like the doc in that world? Gosh, it's really interesting because I feel like there we kind of have a dearth of, uh, you know, medieval television programming. I mean, I, I make uh, TV shows, whether or not they're documentaries, I don't know where I, I, kind of, I kind of try to talk about things. So um, I did a series for History Hit, which is like an online, um, it, it's like YouTube, but it's history. I don't know. Um, and I did one kind of explaining the various um, ways of life in the medieval period. So talking about um, peasants, uh, merchants, clergymen, and the nobility and how they kind of like work together uh, to try to kind of get people to get their heads around it. But I think it's something that we're starting to break into now. And unfortunately, a lot of medieval documentaries will just kind of be like, oh, you know, the Battle of Crecy one more time. You know, we, we tend to focus a little too much on war and things like that, I think, where people want a little bit more um, everyday life. And that's what we're kind of missing within the medieval world. But having said that, I think that there's a lot of us who are starting to work on that now. And with, you know, with the internet again, right, you know, you have all these uh, various services and various ways to do that now. So you don't have to sit around and hope that the BBC notices you, you can get out there and, and make your own thing. So I think that's great. That's awesome. All right. So let's jump in. Okay. I really am interested in this topic. I have said, I said to you earlier, I'm a little scared only because it's two academics talking to each other that this is going to get <laughs> above my head, but it's a fascinating topic. Uh, so tell me your name and what you are way too interested in. Yeah, so I'm uh, Dr. Eleanor Yanaga, and I am way too into the conception of the objectification of sex. <laughs> okay, so this is such an interesting topic. And I also didn't realize this. I, I, I You're pursuing this a little bit right now as well, right? I saw on your website or, or on your when you're academic or the page for whatever university you're at right now, I think yeah, is yeah. LSE, is that where you are? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So at the, and you're, you're actually pursuing this as a specific topic, correct? Yeah, that's right. I've got um, a paper that I am just shaping up right now for publication. Probably, I'm, I'm probably this is going to be. It's an interesting one because this is probably edging into what we call critical sexology. So I'm probably going to be publishing it outside of history circles. But what I'm really interested in is kind of the way that we talk about sex. When I say the objectification of sex, like it's an actual thing, right? Um, and I started thinking about this because I was thinking about um, incels, which you know probably you shouldn't do. <laughs> <laughs> Which, uh, you know, in case in case you, uh, you, you've no, you're not sure what those are, it's um, a group of, like, mostly men who refer to themselves as involuntarily celibate or incels. And the way that they talk about sex all the time is that it's like a commodity. So in their opinion, sex is sort of being apportioned by women who aren't capable of making really good decisions about who's supposed to receive it. And that sex then gets sort of hoarded by a group of men that they think are more like sexually quote unquote successful than they are. So they feel like they're owed sex, which is something that they use all the time. And that there's also kind of this other group of men, which are pickup artists who think that you can kind of like game women into giving up sex. So it's like sex is this thing 
that women own that you're supposed to be getting from them and taking away from them, you know, and even in some of the terms that we'll use for, it, you know, like getting some, you know, things like right. that, where, you know, what, what else will we say? Like people will say you're owed sex, you know, like, oh, you owe them sex after X. And it's like, there are very few actual activities that we ever say that about otherwise, other than maybe a dance in the fifties. Uh, so, right. you know, um, they, it's really interesting because that leads them into kind of, talking about what they call the sexual economy, where the idea is that it's it's kind of like a state of affairs like capitalism more generally. And they, they even put numbers on it. They say, oh yeah, well, 20% of men are having 80% of all the sex is something that, that I've seen. It's said. all stats. It's, it's all stats in it's, it's, yeah, like, the research, I guess. Yeah. 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 And then I've seen, I'm serious. I'm serious. There's some people who call for what they call sexual Marxism, where sex should be huh. distributed equally among men. So it's like, you should have like a government, given girlfriend who who gives you the sex that you're owed and and that, oh and that, that would kind of like you know speed things out so th that's how i kind of started thinking about things because i was like oh, th these men are crazy <laughs> but the thing is, <laughs> and the, the thing is you know they, they sure they are but they get to this point because of the way that our society has talked about sex and thought about sex for a really long time. And I think that when you go back and look at the way that um, theologians and philosophers and, you know, just the generalized scholars within the medieval period to talk about sex, they do talk about it like it's an actual thing. Um, so, you know, it, sex is something that's got like physical properties, like it's, it's hot, it, it can start fires as far as they're concerned. Um, sex is something that is either logical or illogical, according to Thomas Aquinas, who's a, he's like a 13th century theologian. He's a real smart guy, put it that way. Um, like uh, th there's even this literary trope uh, within courtly love. And, you know, we're, we're not sure that this necessarily happened all that much up until the 14th century, but there would be this idea of love courts where you could kind of sue someone for owing you love, which, which is- Oh a my euphemism. God, wow. It, yeah, and that's like a euphemism for sex. And so it's like, yeah, like this sex has been wrongly hoarded by this woman and she should give it up to this man. So there, there are all these ways that medieval people talk about sex and relate to sex as an actual object that kind of changes the world and needs to be apportioned out. And we've, you know, as a society, internalized those a lot and kind of, you know, moved moved on with, you know, our, our own ideas about it, sure. But we're taking that as a given and taking it as bedrock. So I think it's really good to think about where we might have got these ideas so that we can do something about all the incels that go around shooting places up because they're not getting <laughs> yeah, any, of course. you know. Yeah, I, I also like... I mean, it, it is an interesting thing because you don't even think about how insul ins how how inside of us that stuff has become, right? Like that when you mentioned that idea about getting some, like the idea of just some as being a, a thing that is outside of it, because it is a body a body function, right? And it's a natural, it's a very natural thing, but it has been separated in a big way. What? So let me follow up on this. What do you want to know from David, who is a kind of sexual historian? Um, and especially like, you know, he's he's done a lot of LGBTQ stuff, too, which I'm also really interested in kind of in looking at the differences in the hetero versus um, non-hetero questions about how sex is conceived, because I wonder if there's some differences there as well. Yeah, I, I think that's that's a really um, interesting one for me. So I'm 
always really interested in um, queer ideas of sex and and what that means from people. So I've got a really strong handle on what's going on in the medieval period. Uh, but what I'm really interested to do is see if these same kind of ideas about, you know, like heterosex versus queer sex, what acceptable sex is, what you're supposed to be doing with sex, if it tracks over as neatly into the modern period as I really think it does. Uh, so for me, it's going to be really great to see if my own ideas make sense to him because yeah, it, it's one thing where you're like, Oh, in a medieval context, this all makes perfect sense, but you gotta ask someone else sometimes, man. <laughs> <laughs> you have to have a good understanding of it. Okay, great. Well, um, we're going to get, uh, take a quick break here and we'll be right back with David Halprin, who is our expert. He's a, uh, professor as well, an academic. Um, and we'll be right back. Way too interested. Uh, we'll be right back with our expert, uh, but first I want to recommend another book. This is actually a book I'm reading right now. Um, I actually heard it on another podcast, him being interviewed on another podcast, um, the Tim Ferriss podcast, which is a really great interview podcast. Dr. Michio Kaku is a physicist and has written about very high concept astrophysics and all sorts of interesting theoretical physics for a long time. I've been reading his books for a while. Hyperspace is a great one, but I'm reading right now a book called Parallel Worlds, which is really fascinating. And I think if you're interested in in science fiction at all, but if also if you're just interested in like what's possible in the world, you should read it. You will not believe what currently theoretical and high-level physics brains think the reality of our world is. Specifically, um, it gets into string theory, M theory, and the idea that there are essentially an infinite amount of parallel universes that exist. And this is not science fiction. This is possibly real and what people, some of the smartest minds in the world think right now. Anyway, the book's called Parallel Worlds. It's very readable. If you're ever looking for something like this that you're interested in, uh, Dr. Kaku writes very readable fiction, and it gives you... Uh, it's not fiction, sorry. Very readable nonfiction, uh, very readable words, um, but you should check it out. Okay, um, we're going to get back now to our interview. Um, also pretty uh, heady stuff here. We have Dr... I think he's a doctor. He's a PhD, but Professor David Halperin. Um who is an academic and his background is in classics and humanities, but he has studied sex uh, quite extensively, um, has written deeply on the subject of sex, and is a really fascinating um, expert on this topic. The two of these uh, <laughs> brilliant minds go back and forth a lot, and you can tell me, uh, you can tell at some point in this interview, I try to bring it back down to like my level a little bit. They're so smart, but it's such a fascinating conversation. I think you're gonna love it. Take a listen. All right, we're back. Um, I'm very pleased to welcome uh, David Halprin here. David, that's how you pronounce your last name, I assume? Yep. Okay, great. Um, David, can you please kind of tell us a little bit about yourself, give us some of your backstory, and kind of how you ended up studying what you did? Well, it's a long story, but I'll make it quick. I was, great. <laughs> I was trained as a classicist, that is to say I studied Greek and Latin in college and university and uh, grad school and I have a PhD in classics. And I then went on to teach English, basically, for most of my career. I was interested in Plato and in Plato's theories of love and desire. And when I first started out, classicists tended to regard Plato as someone who spoke on behalf of the Greeks about matters of love and desire because we had so many of his dialogues preserved and because he was such an articulate writer. And then during the 1970s, a new batch of 
research on the history of sexuality in ancient Greece made it possible to bring to bear on the study of Plato an independent knowledge of Greek sexual attitudes and practices. And at that point, it became clear that Plato was in fact an outlier among the Greeks in his attitudes to um, sex and desire. So I began then by bringing to, by applying to the study of Plato, this new understanding of his social context. And then figure and ground kind of flipped and I started being interested in the history of sexuality in ancient Greece for its own sake. And from there, the history of sexuality in general, lesbian and gay studies, queer theory, and, uh, and so on. Fantastic. Well, this is a perfect, you know, I think, I feel like we've made a pretty good match here. I know Eleanor <laughs> is, is excited to jump in. So Eleanor, go ahead. Let's, let's uh, start. Yeah, that's a, such a really interesting thing uh, for you to say, David, because, you know, as as a medievalist and someone who works on sexuality, it's so interesting because medieval scholars, when they talk about, you know, sex or ideas of desire, um, they're so desirous of linking themselves to the past and to other, you know, philosophers from the classical period. And, you know, there's a lot more Aristotle than there is Plato, to, to be sure, but they still really revere and uphold Plato and uphold Aristotle. And that's interesting because they're sort of taking it as read that everything that Plato says, everybody agrees with. Everything that Aristotle says, everyone agrees with. And so they very, very much want to be seen as agreeing with those things, but plus a layer of Christianity on the top. Um, so I guess my question is, how much can we say that maybe our own ideas about you know, uh, Plato and his acceptability before you you started looking into these things could be the fault of just taking the word of medieval people for that as well. Well, I have a lot of friends who are medievalists, so, and uh, a lot of great work in the history of sexuality, as you know, has been done in the context of the, of the Middle Ages. I actually think that uh, Plato was right about love and desire. I think there is, he, he got it, he got it basically right. And hey, David, before we move on from that, just could you kind of explain what, what Plato thought about love and desire for the for the layperson out there? Like, what was the what is the, the TLDR version of Plato uh, on love and desire? Well, I think the basic insight that Plato had is that erotic desire cannot be sexually expressed or realized. That is to say, even the most passionate physical desire for another body is not anything that can be fulfilled or achieved through contact with that body, that uh, sexual desire or erotic desire really takes you out of yourself. And that when you're in the presence of someone you passionately desire, what you want is both immediate and completely out of reach. And that in order to understand what's going on in that situation, you have to take into account something beyond the two people involved, that whenever I'm in the presence of the person I desire, there's not just that person and myself in the room, there's something else in the room. There's some third thing in the room, which is that for the sake of which I desire that person, which is not available to me through him, although he makes it present to me. Mm. So that's basically what Plato got right. And all subsequent writing on desire in the West that's any good is basically a variation on that view. 
set forth most eloquently by Proust, but by virtually everybody else, where, where Western thought goes wrong is with Schopenhauer. He, he, he realized that he was a completely original thinker, that he had a view of love. He thought it was the correct view, and he thought that no one had had it before. <laughs> and he was right about that. What he thought was that love was a kind of projection of the instinct for reproduction. And it's true that no one before Schopenhauer had ever thought that erotic desire was simply a byproduct of uh, sexual reproduction. Um, and and uh, then we get a, a more a well-known and popular version of that with Freud. And so then in the modern period, we tend to confuse sex and desire. And then we're puzzled when we have, say, sex with the most beautiful person we've ever seen and something about that experience leaves us still unsatisfied. Mm. I think that that's really interesting, especially with so, um, you, you know, what, what I'm working on at the moment um, is kind of looking at ideas about um, kind of the idea of sex itself, not as necessarily um, in relation to desire, but as, um, you know, an object or something that can be traded or commodified uh, between people. And it's just so interesting to to hear you say that because I'm thinking now of um, St. Augustine of Hippo and his ideas about uh, desire and sex. Um, and for him, when he talks about eroticism, he sees, you know, kind of pleasure or eroticism in the act of sex. And of course here we're, we're talking about very, very boring hetero partnered sex as kind of like a byproduct of the fall of man. So what he thinks is that in the Garden of Eden before Adam and Eve um, committed original sin, they would have been able to procreate without um, any erotic pleasure at all whatsoever. Without, without the, pricklings, the pricklings of concupiscence, he says. Exactly, exactly. And so it's it's um, a kind of a product of the, the, the downfall of man that we experience eroticism. And so it, it's just so interesting to, to hear you say that because it's like, yeah, well, it, it, to a certain extent, now I have to kind of say that he's right, even though, you know, I, I spent all my time arguing with, about St. Augustine and thinking that he's wrong. But it's like, oh, yeah, you know, if we consider, you know, fantasy and eroticism and the thing that lives within the individual as something that can never be realized as opposed to, you know, sex itself as something that happens between two people, then he's kind of got me. And now I'm going to be frustrated. Uh, well, because... no, no, reason, no reason for you for you to be frustrated. Uh, Augustine <laughs> obviously has a, a, a weird view of sex such that he wishes it could be the outcome of a rational choice without passing through desire. But as a writer about desire, he's extremely eloquent and powerful. Uh, in fact, uh, when Nietzsche said that Christianity was just Platonism for the masses, he really was thinking about Augustine. So if you think what Augustine says about the death of his friend in Book 4 of the Confessions, for example, he makes it clear that all desire for other is really desire for something else, that something goes beyond the other, that it's desire for God, that you can't uh, love individuals for themselves, you can only love them in God, that 
It was fortunate that God killed his friend because he was hung up on the particularity of his friend. He compares it to wanting to hang on to syllables in a sentence instead of wanting them to fly away, transvolare, he says, fly past. You want to run through as many people as possible so that you uh, don't uh, get uh, attached to them in particular because your desire is, is generic. It's, it's a desire you have for any, anyone that's beautiful or anyone that you love. And in the end, Augustine, as you know, found the perfect boyfriend in St. Paul. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and in the case of St. Paul, he doesn't love just St. Paul. He loves the love for which he loves St. Paul because it brings him closer to God. That's, you know, remember that's in Book 8 of On the Trinity. So Augustine is a great Platonic theorist of desire and a great, a great transmitter of, of Platonic love to the Christian world. But I really think, I, I mean, I would be happy to go on to talk about, the, uh, about why Plato was right and why everybody <laughs> has always agreed with Plato, even without knowing it. But since you're interested in, in the history of sex, I think part of the lesson of all this is that we should distinguish sex from erotic desire, especially the act of sex or categories of sex. So even though I think that Plato was right about desire and that his view is as valid now as it was uh, 2,500 years ago, when it comes to sex, our categories and our ways of thinking about it have changed radically. In other words, I'm an essentialist about desire, but I'm very much a relativist about sex. Uh, it's very bad idea to um, take our own categories of sex and sexuality and project them backwards in time, because in fact, our own thinking is really quite recent and nothing like it is reflected in the periods of the past. So uh, like you, when I'm not thinking about Plato, I'm thinking about categories or classifications of sex and gender. I've been fascinated by those. So in some sense, I'm a good interlocutor for you because <laughs> I'm interested in the history of those categories. Oh, if so, I've got, I've got one for you then, because I'm, I'm sure that you're going to be a great person to, to ask about this. So I'm, I'm really interested in um, Aquinas's thinking about sex as being on a kind of spectrum from rational to irrational, right? And, which is, you know, synonymous in his mind with kind of a sinful to illicit, right? So, you know, your rational sex is procreative, married, heterosex, yeah. And then irrational sex is, you know, basically anything fun. So, you know, um, <laughs> you know what, what we would classify as gay sex, what he would classify as sodomy, um, things like that. But I kind of think that it's, it's not quite a parallel, obviously, because our own categories of sex are completely different. But it often reminds me of uh, Gail Rubin's charmed circle of sex. Yes, uh, which I, I guess suppose I will explain yeah. to the, you to the audience. Really quickly. Yeah. yeah, so it's it's this really great thing that I think about all the time. Um, so it, the charm circle, she says that there's kind of um, a circle of sex that our society finds acceptable. So um, to be in the charm circle and be having the kind of sex that we accept, um, that's heterosexual, like married, monogamous, procreative, non-commercial, paired in a relationship, same generation, so same age, private without 
pornography and, you know, what we would call vanilla, so only bodies. And then that's contrasted which, with what she calls the outer circle. And that's the kind of sex that we consider unacceptable. So that's um, homosexual, unmarried, non-monogamous, non-procreative, uh, commercial, alone or with more than two people. Um, like casual or cross-generational public uh, using porn or using objects or anything that's kind of kinky, right? So we're still kind of creating these hierarchies, but obviously we have a lot more, um, I suppose, categories now than poor Aquinas could have ever dealt with. But I'm just wondering what you, you might think about that, David. Well, I think all societies have hierarchies uh, of... of um or at least distinctions between good and bad sex, they simply tend to be wildly different from ours. So if you look at what John J. Winkler wrote about the Greek dream interpreter, Artemidorus in the second century or so of our era, Foucault also writes about him at length, he, he interprets the meaning of dreams. Uh, and he organizes uh, sexual dreams according to whether the sex acts that are being dreamt about are unnatural and conventional, whether they're unconventional or whether they're unnatural. So those are those are uh, those are hierarchical categories. In the natural and conventional, he basically groups everything, all forms of penetrative sex between men and women, men and men, masturbation, pretty much everything. There are two kinds of sex that are perfectly natural, according to him. And he's, I should say, he's not imposing his own views. He, in order to interpret dreams, he has to rely on what dreams mean to the people who are dreaming them. So the kinds of sex he's talking about are the kinds of sex that the dreamers themselves would consider routinely to be, say, in this case, natural, but unconventional, uh, non-standard. And those are two kinds, basically uh, incest of various sorts and oral genital sex. So those are both perfectly natural. Uh, there's nothing unnatural about a man having penetrative sex with his mother, but it's not accepted. <laughs> I we both just cringed, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, but, yeah but, exactly. But viewed in terms of, of intercourse, according to Artemidorus, it's a natural, it's a perfectly natural act. Mm. Right. Um, it's, however, frowned upon. And the other kind of sex that he thinks is natural, that, that, that the people whose dreams he's interpreting will think is, is natural but unconventional, is any kind of oral genital sex. Um, uh, people had it, they enjoyed it, um, but it's, it's again, it's frowned on uh, in the ancient Mediterranean world. Can I ask you a question? Is that, is that because of, 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 uh, of health reasons? Was there a specific reason or was there, why was that frowned upon and, and uh, uh, so many other ones accepted? Uh, it's, you know, different strokes for different societies. <laughs> okay. uh, I think there's some notion of hierarchy of, of, um, Keep right. the higher parts of the body, the mouth that's used for speaking, uh, away from from the genitals. But but anal sex, for example, between any partners, 
is thought of by him and by the people in his society as entirely natural and conventional. No one has, has any objections to that. The kinds of acts that he thinks of as, as against nature are basically things that, that don't map onto, onto society, onto social meanings. So sex with a god, with an animal, or with a corpse, for example. A man who penetrates himself in some way or other, and women who penetrate other women. Not women mm. who have sex with other women, but women who have penetrative sex right. with other women. So those are things that don't compute in his world. And so they're thought of as, at least the people he's writing about, think of them as against nature. Okay, I actually have some, a thought here that I'm just sort of so curious about. And this is, again, like the non-academic person coming into this conversation. So that is like one definition of all these roles, right, that happened in one point of history. I'm assuming that like when that kind of definition gets put out, there are reverberations that reverberate across other eras of history, right, as we go forward. But like how how do those change over time? Or I mean, this is a very broad question. I realize that when I'm asking it, but like those were set at this point. And then do they just change kind of randomly based on culture? Or is there are there specific moments where like culture is shifting that those things change? Because that obviously when we're talking about this, the definitions of what's right and what's wrong, that's very different than what we talk about now even, right? Or, or say in the last, you know, maybe not now, but like when you talk about how um, homosexual sex was, was totally an okay thing, the last, you know, whatever, uh, you know, say, I don't, you know this better than I do. I don't know how many years, but like, it's only recently that that's become much more access, acceptable in modern cultures. So like, what, what does the shifting point look like when those things happen or how does it happen? Well, first of all, <clears throat> I want to be clear that when Artemidorus is talking about sex acts that are unnatural, he's not saying they're wrong. Okay. So they're just not according to nature. So in the same way, according to him, potted plants are unnatural. <laughs> right, or, okay. or not according to Artemidorus, but according to Seneca, according to other ancient authors. And to say that oral sex or incest are frowned on isn't to say that uh, they're necessarily wrong. And to say that all forms of sex between people of the same sex uh, that involve a sexual penetration, especially of one uh, partner penetrating someone who's lower on the hierarchy than he is, that's not to say that that's necessarily okay, because um, rape is still wrong. It's just not unnatural or unconventional from a sexual standard. Um, so rape is wrong, various kinds of abuse are wrong. If you're a man, being penetrated by another man is shameful. So there are all sorts of other kinds of moral evaluations that can be brought to bear on sex acts. But those are different from classifications according to uh, what is conventional or what is thought to be according to nature. And all these things change over time as uh, society changes, as, as the Roman Empire evolved. The Christians brought their own views in, but the Christian views were often uh, variations on on late antique views that were already much more austere than during the time of Artemidorus. So yes, things evolve, 
kind of according to their own logic, it's a little hard to say whether there is anything directing this gradual drift. Mm. Mm. I find that really interesting as well because um, I'm thinking, unfortunately, I'm just going to keep bringing up Aquinas. I'm very sorry. <laughs> um, but, you know, his classifications of things being um, logical to illogical and, and, and pinning that on um, sinful to not. But also, and so, also according to nature or not according to nature. For yes. That's a big one for him. Exactly, because so for him, for something to be according to nature, um, that's also going to be less sinful uh, because, you know, the nature being understood as a divine uh, thing, then that means that um, if you do something according to nature, it's going to be licit. It won't be sinful because God intends it. So it's interesting because, for example, the way that he'll talk about rape is that there, there's also kind of hierarchies to it. So, for example, he doesn't necessarily see rape as a as a form of sex that is always in all cases. I mean, it's, it's bad, but it's not the worst thing that you can do. So when, for example, an unmarried woman um, is, is raped, the problem for Aquinas there isn't about the actual sex that occurs or, you know, the problem that, you know, a woman's consent has been violated, which is what we would say. What his problem is, is that someone was having sex outside of kind of the bonds that her parents would like. So if she's unmarried, you should have kind of, um, you know, got her parents' permission. So if a rapist abducts a woman and rapes her, he can then go back to the parents and say, well, actually, I'd like to marry your daughter. And then if they say, yeah, that's fine, you can go ahead and marry her, then there's sort of no harm done. That was the law in Italy until the 70s. I was in Italy yeah. in the mid-70s when, the, when they changed the law that said that you could not prosecute a man for rape if he had offered to marry his victim. Oh, mm -hmm. my God. Yeah. That changed, that changed in the 70s in Italy. And that's crazy, right? You know, to us and in the way that we kind of think about our morality. But it's got these links to this idea of like, well, okay, so if sex is is a commodity that, you know, women kind of represent and it's traded between men, right? So, you know, the, the trouble here is not that, you know, a woman has experienced a terrible thing. It's like, oh, well, if she has um, offspring as a result of this, then that needs to be brought into kind of the patrilineal lineage and you need to, you need to bring that together. So it's sort of like a property dispute almost and much less, um, you know, how we would think about it as, you know, like a crime against a person. Um, and so, yeah, obviously that's hugely, hugely different to what we're talking about when we talk about the ancient world. And there are all sorts of reasons for that, you know, including obviously the, the hold that Christianity has had by the time, you know, we get to the 13th century and we're talking about Aquinas, you know, thousands of years have elapsed, but it is these things that we see ossify at that point, and here you go. So here, here's Aquinas saying this in the 1200s, and it's not till the 1970s that it that it changes. You know, in his in his hometown, right? So you, you know, it's it's interesting because we can talk about these things as well. That's a long time ago. We have really different ideas about sex now and the way that we think about it, but that's not really necessarily the case, is it? Well, there are social forms, there's social social structures some of which are more enduring than particular ideas about sex or classifications about sex or uh, morals having to do with sex. Let's think of the uh, laws uh, that I think still obtained in a number of American states about alienation of affections. 
right, in which one man uh, could attack another for seducing his wife on having alienated from him her affections, which as a wife belonged to him. Mm. Mm -hmm. These ought not to be ideas that are extremely unfamiliar to us. They've been at home in our societies until very recently, and some of them may still be on the books. See that I'm absolutely obsessed with, right? You know, because that's exactly the the sort of thing that I'm I'm thinking about at the moment. So yeah, here's this: these affections have been alienated and transferred from one man to another, as though they're a thing or they are a property that a husband should, in theory, own. Absolutely, they they be- they belong to him. Uh, they they are due to him. And that's interesting because that relates a little bit to the idea of um, the conjugal debt, I, I, I would say as well. Um, which, oh, yeah, what is that? Can you define that for us so we know what that is? It's, a, it's an interesting term. Yeah. So, it, I mean, it, it kind of does what it says on the tin, which is that if you are married, then you owe your partner sex if they ask for it in a way that is deemed reasonable. And, that, and it goes both ways. You know, women can can ask that of their husband. The husbands can ask it of their wives. There, there, so there are reasonable limits to it within the medieval context. Like, you know, you shouldn't be doing it if a woman is on her period, for example, because she can't get pregnant and you should be having sex in order to get pregnant, right? You, it can't just be for fun. It should be procreative in theory. You know, you shouldn't be doing it on a Sunday. You shouldn't be doing it during Lent. There are all these kind of rules about it. So there are ways to say, no, honey, it's Lent, you know, I'd I'd rather not do it. But on the whole, you know, if say it's a Saturday in ordinary time, then you probably have to go through with it, um, whether or not you necessarily feel like it um, as a result of of this conception. Right. But that's a, uh, that's a sexual act, which is incumbent upon married people. That's different from uh, an affection, which in, in which case the woman's affection is owed to the man. And if it's been alienated, that is to say, if it's been, if he has been robbed of it because it's been directed elsewhere, then he has been injured in his property relations, really, with his wife. I forget, as for the conjugal debt, I forget who the, I forget if it's Aristotle or if it's Solon or who the ancient Greek writer is who says that married couples should have sex was it three times a month or once every three months something like oh that. He yeah said, the yeah way, the way cities renew their treaties periodically <laughs> <laughs> oh my god that's amazing i love it but i really think you know we say now about politics that uh when talking about our particular political situations and division uh we now say in the old days people would say, well, I'll, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. Nowadays, people say, uh, when I believe it, I'll see it. <laughs> um, but this is very much true of the history of sexuality. That is to say, we see whatever we believe. So because we believe in homosexuality and heterosexuality as self-evident categories of desire or of persons, we see them in the medieval world or in the ancient world uh, you could say the same thing about marriage, say, we see what we already believe, what makes sense to us. So we see them when we look. But in fact, if we look at the ancient materials, and I'm sure the medieval materials, without a reference to them, 
uh, then we see something quite different. For example, just, just even the most basic categories, we think of men and women, or we think of male and female as categories of sex. We think of sex as a kind of physical property that both male and female members of the species have, the male sex and the female sex. Sex is a category that applies to both. The ancient Greeks speak of, uh, speak of women as belonging to a separate race. The, the genos gynaikon, the race of women, the nation of women. Uh, so they think of men and women as different, but so different that there's not necessarily a single category called sex that would encompass them both. In effect, when we talk about men and women in Greek antiquity, we're talking about apples and oranges in a world without fruit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if you understand what I mean. There's no yeah, yeah. category that groups them together. They're just different. And one can talk about the nature of women or the nature of men. So even when it comes to the most basic categories that seem to make sense to us, we will, of course, see what we believe when we look at past historical periods. But that often prevents us from seeing what's there. Uh, can I say, I have one question about what you just said there, David, um, in ancient Greece, if they, if they were men and women were seen as different, essentially different species, what was the viewer, the, the understanding of like male, you know, homosexual sex in either category then was that a, was that viewed in a, in a, was it a different kind of view of what sex was defined as then if, if they were, it was almost like interspecies versus cross-species sex? Like, I'm just kind of curious to dig in on that. When the uh, ancient doctors, when, when they inquired into fertility or into reproduction, many of them, uh, the Hippocratic doctors, imagined that there was both male and female seed. And that male and female seed, when men and women had intercourse and when, uh, the, um, and when their seeds mingled, there was sometimes a struggle between the male and female seed for dominance in the womb. And whichever came out ahead would, it, would determine, say, whether the infant resembled the father or the mother more or had their characteristics. Other people, like Aristotle, thought that women didn't contribute any seed at all, yeah. uh, that they were simply human incubators into which men planted seed, and so they contributed nothing, no what we would call genetic material, to procreation. So that, that's just an example of how, uh, yeah, how you could think about differentiation. And then uh, when it comes to uh, sex between men or sex between women, there are various things it's, it can be good for, pleasure, the desire for beauty, the, uh, the cultivation of luxury, heroic pair bonding and war, it could be, it could have different meanings in different contexts. One of the things that's interesting is that in the ancient world, as in the medieval or Renaissance world, the, the men's desire for women was not necessarily masculinizing. Mm -hmm. What made men virile was their success in competing with other men in politics in combat. Uh, their desire for women was not exactly a, a sign of, of, their, of their virility, rather the opposite. Making war was manly, making love was, was, 
was fem was effeminate, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so when Romeo was hesitating to fight Juliet's cousin Tybalt, he says, "Oh, sweet Juliet, thy beauty hath made me effeminate, and in my temper soften valor's steel." In other words, Juliet has made him go limp, <laughs> which doesn't mean that he wasn't sexually excited by her. It just means that she destroys his masculinity, which if he were really virile, he wouldn't be hesitating to fight with Tybalt. So the relation of sex and gender in different periods is also, from our point of view, scrambled, or at least it can be quite scrambled. Yeah, exactly. You've, you've hit on, on something here, which is, is what I'm kind of working with also on this, is, is that, um, you know, kind of stultifying or feminizing aspect of sexuality that we see come up over and over again. And medieval people are constantly warning you, like, don't don't have too much sex with your good lady wife, even if it's the correct kind of sex, because you'll become like a woman. Um, and, you know, women being, uh, from their standpoint, the gender that is much, much more interested in sex, because for them, an overt interest in sex is illogical. And because men are logical and women are not logical, then women are, are, are going to be the, the gender that is interested in sex as a result. You know, that's just how it works. There are also some texts from, from Greek antiquity that indicate that at least some women may have found the soft style of masculinity appealing. So a, a man who wants, who wants to please women, a man who's given to adultery or to having lots of affairs with women, may wear makeup and shave his body and tint his hair and things like that in order to appeal to women who don't like the rough and tough style of masculinity that other men respect in in, in men. I think uh, uh, the last thing that I was curious about too was just like, obviously one of the things we've, it seems like we've been talking around a little bit, or at least from my perspective, is the idea of power involved in the conceptualization of sex, right? Like, and how, David, in your kind of background, like how has power factored into this? And this could be like, you know, I, I, what I'm thinking when I say power is like kind of who's in power, versus who's not in power. Um, but it could be government, it could be cultural, it could be all that stuff. What, how does power factor in how we conceive of sex? Well, in the wake of Foucault's thinking about sex, which I accept, I basically think it's all about power. But and not because it's about domination, but because sexual norms are an important element in the way that modern liberal societies regulate individuals. That is to say, when we want people to behave, when we want people to stop smoking, for example, we don't call out the army and the police, we don't pass a law against smoking and uh, try to arrest any people, we catch smoking and crucify them in the public square as an example to others. It's much more, well, it's, it's much less expensive and it's much more effective if whenever I see Gavin smoking, I wonder if he's suffering from low self-esteem, if he's had a bad breakup, if there's something wrong with him, if uh, he's, he's being self-destructive. In other words, we resort to various forms of... Shaming? Well, also, or therapy, or just, or just basically what I'm saying is that modern societies outsource policing functions to us. Uh, to each individual and to the way we regard our, our friends and family. 
we are the ones who hold one another to different standards according to what we think of as acceptable norms. And if you really want to regulate people at the very individual level, at the, you might say, the capillary level, the most useful way to do that is through multiplying categories and classifications of sex and sexuality. Because there, it's possible, for example, even in, even in the marital bedroom, even when you're all alone, even when no one's watching you, it's possible to do something that may get you into trouble with your spouse. If they um, you cross a line in some way, you cross a line of some right. You do something unexpected you haven't done before. They hadn't realized you like that sort of thing. Um, you you put yourself in a position of being redressed, of being disciplined, even in the most, and especially in the most intimate parts of your lives. So that's how sex works in modern societies. It's political through and through. It's a political device for the organization of, 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 of the population at the individual level. That's fascinating. I mean, that, that is really interesting. Um, well, we should get close to wrapping it up. Eleanor, is there anything else you wanted to ask before we go? I, I mean, the, I could ask a million things, and the problem is if I ask one more thing, we're going to be here for another hour. Um, this has just been <laughs> such an absolute delight, um, you know, to to have a think about for me um, and to have especially a deeper thought about uh, theories within the ancient world and how they link on to our own or indeed don't. Um, and I'd just really like to thank you both for letting me, me come here and listen. Well, thanks uh, so much to both of you for being here. David, thank you so much for for coming and being our expert. And Eleanor, thank you. Oh, you know, David, before we go, I do this for all of my expert guests. If you don't mind, I'm throwing you on the spot. Is there something in your mind that you can't stop thinking about right now outside of your everyday um, academic work? Like, what is there something you're obsessed with that's totally random? Other than other than the fact that the world is coming to an end? No, that's, that's... <laughs> yeah, right. It's very difficult to get to get another thought in edgewise. I'm afraid. That's a pretty good one, I have to say. We're all we're all semi obsessed with that for sure right now. Um, well, thank you both of you for for coming in uh, to the podcast, and I really appreciate it. this was a super uh, deep one and, and a good one, and and it was a lot of fun, and and I appreciate it. Well, Thanks you're so welcome. much. Thanks for having me. All right, everybody, that's today's episode. Um, thank you for listening. Uh, come back next week for another episode. I know we had one week that we were off there. Um, my fault, <laughs> but we'll get it fixed up. Thanks to the Gregory Brothers for the theme song. Thanks to Eric Johnson for help producing the podcast. And most of all, thanks to you for listening. Um, please follow me on Twitter at Gavin Purcell. I'm always looking for new subjects and new um, experts to talk about. So please suggest some there. Um, and I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, everybody. See you next time. <laughs>